And so we actually designed Apollo Client first and foremost. In some sense, its key feature was that we welcomed contributions from developers across the ecosystem. Open source is great because of the community it creates. And it's powerful because it empowers developers to improve the product itself. It's not a closed system that comes to you from an outside vendor. It's a living, breathing product itself that everybody can improve. My name is Matt DeBurgulis, and I'm the co-founder and CTO of Apollo GraphQL. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today, how Matt DeBurgulis built the tool set to help developers write apps faster. All this and more on Code Story. Matt DeBurgulis has been into tech since he was a boy, playing games like Flight Simulator on his Commodore 64 and reviewing the schematics in the handbook. To Matt, computers are tools to make things possible and enable people to build things quickly. He loves community building with his background in politics and he loves the open source world. He finds that it's a powerful force for organizing people to create what wasn't possible before. He lives in San Francisco with his wife and six-year-old, and he's a private pilot owning his own plane. When asked how he balances all he has going on, he quickly replies that anything worth doing is going to require hard work. For him, this is his family, flights, and code adventures. Previously, Matt co-wrote an open-source product called Meteor, attempting to make it simpler and faster to write JavaScript applications. At the core of the tool, there was a capability to write a query to move data around, instead of writing the code. He and his team took that capability and formed what they're focused on now. This is the creation story of Apollo GraphQL. Apollo is an open source company. We make tools for application developers. And in particular, GraphQL is a technology that dramatically accelerates how quickly a developer can build a great product. And the way I would think about it is, when you think of an app, turns out there's two pieces to writing an app. Part of it is designing the screen. Um, and if you're familiar with software development, you would know technologies like React or Angular as tools that developers use on the web, or you would think about Coco as something you might use to build an iOS app. So that's the interface. You're actually making boxes, you're figuring out what the screen layout's going to be, how you navigate through the app, everything that makes a really rich, modern experience. That's the fun part. The other part of making an app is all the code you have to write to connect the UI you built to all of the data that you want to put on the screen. If you think about building an application for an e-commerce store, right? You've got to go fetch data about your products, reviews, maybe pricing, maybe a recommendation, all kinds of different pieces of data. And it turns out the bulk of the time spent making applications is actually that plumbing. 
And what Apollo does is help you replace the plumbing that you had to write by hand. Think of it as running a bunch of wires or connections between your APIs and your UI. You can replace all that with a database query, something that looks much more like a description of the data that you want to put on the screen. And Apollo is a system that handles all the details for you. So we came to this by way of an open source project called Meteor that I co-wrote with my co-founders here. Meteor was a, an effort to make it dramatically easier and faster to write modern applications in JavaScript. And it included a lot of ideas, but really at the core of Meteor was this capability that let you write a query instead of having to write all the code to move data around. And Apollo is really just an outgrowth of that. We realized how valuable this was, not just for Meteor developers, but really for any developer, any team, any company trying to build modern applications. That's basically everybody. And we found a way to craft this so that any team could adopt it piece by piece and bring it into the UI and the services that they already had in the organization. So our, our bread and butter business is helping developers build great apps, build them quickly, build them with larger teams. And ultimately, that means helping companies put better experiences in front of their customers, in front of their users, anybody that's interacting with the data they have. Well, tell me about the MVP. So that first product you, you created, how long did it take to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? Well, the foundation of our business is open source. I suppose the most M, most V, most P was a library that we wrote called Apollo Client. This is something written in JavaScript. JavaScript, by the way, is a fascinating language, I think. It's the industry standard for how anything on the web gets written, anything that you're interacting with that runs inside a browser. Little side story, JavaScript got written originally in about 10 days. It was a frantic attempt to create enough of a language that would let people do more with this new web technology that was coming about. And it was really a toy. I mean, if you want to talk about MVP, the first versions of JavaScript were in many ways um, too simple, too slow, too buggy. What's so interesting is how over the years and decades that followed, so many web developers started building applications with JavaScript. The early days of JavaScript, it was about disabling a button so you didn't accidentally click it twice and buy a product two times, right? But it's grown into an incredibly capable language with a vast ecosystem of libraries, developers, uh, companies. And I think that's kind of an interesting story in its own right, that MVPs can flourish when they solve a real need and when they're easy to adopt because that creates this virtuous cycle. The more people that work on any technology, the more time people spend improving it, which attracts yet more people, which attracts yet more capital to improve it and so on. One of the things I've learned in, in my career is in many ways, it's less about the core technology or the design or the perfect system that determines what really succeeds in, in the market. And it's more about what's easy to use, what has a really rewarding first experience for anybody that chooses to use it, what creates a sense of confidence that if I use this technology, I'm not going to be the last person to choose it, but rather I'm going to be at the forefront of a growing movement. That's job security. That makes me an expert at a valuable technology, all those sorts of things. And so I've, I've thought more and more about 
how do we make Apollo, how do we just generally make technologies that are attractive to adopt and that have a really nice cycle where the more we use them, the more they, they serve us and the more they help us serve other people. So yeah, the, the MVP for Apollo was, was this library in JavaScript called Apollo Client. It was really designed to do two things. One is it, it solved this problem I was talking about. If I'm a web developer using JavaScript, instead of writing all that plumbing code I talked about earlier, it let me start trying out this, this GraphQL idea. And the other thing it did was, from an open source community perspective, Apollo Client served another need in the ecosystem, which is it gave these developers that wanted to go down this path with us a place to collaborate. And I think one of the most important things about any open source project is that it have a, a welcoming front door. Open source is great because of the community it creates, and it's powerful because it empowers developers to improve the product itself. It's not a closed system that comes to you from an outside vendor. It's a living, breathing product itself that everybody can improve. And so we actually designed Apollo Client first and foremost. In some sense, its key feature was that we welcomed contributions from developers across the ecosystem. And that let us start to build not just a piece of technology that solved a problem, but a, a movement of developers that were eager to help us solve that problem. And out of that came many of the people that work at the company today, many of the companies that have adopted Apollo since an early time. It's all downstream of, of that focus on inclusion and community and giving people a, a place to contribute. So, you know, with any MVP, right, there's decisions and trade-offs that you have to make, right? Feature cut, technical debt. Technical debt may be interesting with the open source nature. You know, what sort of decisions and trade-offs did you have to make in the short term with Apollo GraphQL? And then how did you cope with those decisions? Yeah, tech debt and open source is interesting because of that nature I was describing earlier. If you build a product, a closed commercial product, and you put it into the market, customers have certain expectations of it, right? I mean, you can ship a minimum viable product that has lots of bugs and, and issues, but if you're building a developer tool, if you're building something that developers have to count on as a building block for their own applications, there's a certain quality that's necessary for them to be able to depend on it. With open source, the equation changes a bit because when they run into a limitation or a flaw or a bug in your open source product, there's an opportunity. It, it's actually a prompt for a conversation about, well, how can we improve this? So the MVP that, that we built made use of this. The first versions of Apollo Client were slow. They didn't have features that people thought were important. There were lots of limitations. But sort of the killer feature in some sense, the thing that made all of that acceptable was the fact that it, it was a living, breathing product that could change. And, and we took frequent updates and, and we evolved it. And the other thing that gives you is it's, it's much more important to find a small number of people that really love what you've built and that would be in a tough spot if you took it away from them than it is to find a shallower, broader base of people that kind of sort of like it and use it. But if it went away, they wouldn't really mind too much. They would find a, an alternative. Those first users of Apollo Client are people that did bring it into their applications. They saw extraordinary benefit. And while they had to do a lot of work on their side to complete the picture, they were excited about that work because it was the kind of work they wanted to be doing. And we were able to leverage that first set of adoption companies into uh, more and more momentum around this. 
Then how did you progress the product from there? How did you mature the product? And I think I'm interested too, like how did you decide what was the next most important thing to build and in, in, in doing that, you know, build your roadmap? You know, one of the benefits of any growing user base or a community is you can often just ask, what would you like next? And they'll tell you, you know, the classic cycle that you want to create is you you have clarity about maybe a strategic direction and then you use that to identify a set of users that you want to serve and then you just ask them like what what would you like to see that comes next so for example graphql like any api really has two pieces there's the side of the system that produces the data and there's the side that consumes the data. You can think of an API like a connection between two things. And until you have both sides of that connection agreeing, you haven't yet solved a problem. So Apollo Client is one side of the equation. It explains how a team with a GraphQL API can connect that API to their user interface. And it's got all these benefits we talked about. The challenge is how do you how do you solve the chicken and egg problem? How do you also make sure that the data is available in GraphQL form. And so pretty quickly after Apollo Client, we found ourselves building what we now call Apollo Server, which is the other half of the picture. And I think if you look inside almost any rapidly growing piece of technology, you'll find one of the problems that had to get solved is you don't just need an MVP, you need a a whole answer, kind of an end-to-end answer that creates the incentive for a team to adopt it enough to see value. And some products benefit from having a very short time to value. Something Slack did very well, for example, is that in one minute, right, you could get a team of two or three or four people up and running on Slack. You could send each other a message. It's probably got a cool reaction or emoji or something in there. And at that point, you're hooked. You you get it. You see the value. It's better than the thing you had before. But with developer tools, it's a more complex journey. I mean, the reality is most of the technology that we rely on that's actually mature enough to build a real application with needs more than a couple of minutes before you're proficient with it, before you've rolled it out at sufficient scale to see its benefit. Right? You can't learn a language generally in two or three minutes. So with Apollo, a big part of the challenge is... How do you walk that fine line where you want to make sure that initial experience is delightful, it's simple, it's approachable, without in any way undermining the technical sophistication or quality that's so important? Because developers are wicked savvy, right? They're not going to adopt a piece of technology if it smells like something that's going to lead them to a dead end. I mean, and it happens all the time, right? We see lots of really intriguing libraries, tools, SaaS products that I think over-rotate around simplicity, around ease of onboarding. And then you get there and you think, wait a second, like, I love this. This is fun. It might be a good choice for my hobby project. Am I really going to transition sort of a key piece of my whole, you know, technology strategy at my business onto this thing? Eh, maybe not. And then you see other technologies that are incredibly sophisticated, incredibly capable. And the problem is the on-ramp is just too daunting. And they they end up being a little bit esoteric. If you really, really need them, and somehow you've taken the time to reason about the problem long enough to feel confident in your judgment, then you can adopt them even at high cost. But your typical team just, 
they're too busy. They're not going to they're not going to have the time and the space for that. And and I think one of the trends in software development over the last 10 years with agile, with modern DevOps and, and the tools that support that is savvy leaders in the software development industry no longer buy any kind of argument that starts with our team's going to need a year or two to go do a big rewrite or to transition to a new piece of technology. That's too risky and it doesn't show value and it's just hard to justify these days. So we're we're finding kind of this this sweet spot of this Goldilocks where you've got both and you've got them in balance. There's a a journey or a path where each step of the way you're in good hands, you see the value, it's worth taking the next step and you have the confidence to take that next step and learn what you need to learn because you can see the benefit you're going to get from there and you can bring your team along with you. Perfect segue into team. So how did you build your team? And you know, what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? The answer is inside the question. The answer to how you build a team is to zero in on who's great at building teams. You know, at least at Apollo, the leaders that have emerged across the organization in engineering and product in design in marketing and sales everywhere are people that you know I start with who's the ambassador for our values who's great at recruiting people to the cause who thinks carefully about team building and development who's interested in aligning others to a common purpose you know I don't know there's that quote right culture eats strategy for breakfast it's true. It's, in my experience, a lot more important to have leaders whose core strength is culture than it is to have any other particular characteristic or optimize for anything else. In an open source company, I think you can embrace that early on, even when your team is small and, and, and when you're not necessarily hiring new people every week. Because the whole act of building an open source community is just like hiring it's just that the developers aren't on payroll, but you're still recruiting people. You're still organizing them to contribute different ways to the project. You're still creating teams that are aligned to a common purpose, that share a common vision of, of what the thing can be, right? And, and I just think a lot of these are skills that I've learned to appreciate. And um, as, as Apollo grows, and now we're, we're in the position where we do have teams of people that are growing very quickly, the, the place we focus is, who can best communicate what it is we're doing to the next generation of developers and, and others who are going to join the company and, and who can help them grow into the future leaders of, of that cohort and, and on from there? Well, this will be interesting. This is always interesting with, you know, an open source solution. But, you know, Apollo GraphQL is a large open source solution. So I'm interested to hear what you have to say in this topic. Let's talk about scalability. Did you build this to scale efficiently, either technology-wise or team-wise in the beginning, or were you fighting this as you grew? For us, scalability in every sense, is, is Apollo going to scale inside of a company that adopts it? Is Apollo the company going to be able to scale? That was, for me, at the foundation of everything we were trying to do. This stuff's only interesting if it can serve the most sophisticated companies that are building the most complex products. And GraphQL in particular is, in my view, especially valuable in the largest companies. So this is a technology that was first explored at Facebook. They're 
their fundamental challenge was we have, I don't know, probably on the order of a thousand developers at the time. We need a way, we Facebook need a way for those developers to all collaborate effectively on an application. We want them shipping as quickly as possible. This is the whole Facebook ethos around software development. And, you know, I, I have my reservations about Facebook in certain respects as a company and a product. But one thing unquestionably, I think Facebook's done well and has shown the world how to do better is orienting the software practice around creating value for their users. And GraphQL is a key piece of that strategy. It lets large teams of developers actually solve user problems by letting them ship the capabilities and the features that those users want. In the past, too much of IT, I think, has been driven by these internal considerations, right? Let's, let's re-architect our database so that we have some sort of better cost structure or you know, some other back-end consideration. And the, the trend of the last decade has been toward empowering the developers that create business value that, that adds to the top line by shipping a new feature, by rolling out to a new kind of platform. Think about the companies that quickly got onto mobile when mobile first came out or quickly got onto Alexa and the other voice platforms when those came out and, and how successful they've been. Or I think about, you know, one of our customers is Peloton. I mean, it's just a bike, right? But they figured out how to take a bike and create it into a whole digital experience. And the way they did that was by empowering their teams to write really great software, not just software on the web like we're used to, but a really integrated software experience that includes a, a bike that has a digital interface. My point is this stuff's all about how do we scale? How do we get to the point where we're able to create more and more software and do it faster and faster? That's the pressure every company's under. And for us, that was always at the heart of the technical architecture that we pursued, the way we thought about structuring our teams, the kinds of developers and the companies that we most wanted to spend our time with because we knew that they would be the, the acid test for how this really succeeds in market over the long term. And, and that's worked, uh, I'd say, pretty well for us. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all you've built with Apollo GraphQL, what are you most proud of? Uh, the honest truth is, I love the work we do, and I, I tend to stay humble and just focus on what needs to be done next. I think we've barely scratched the surface. I suppose the thing I would think about is, I think it's important that any endeavor like this reach a lot of people. Our, our mission is to help application developers, and, and in particular, we want to help them make the world a better place. Part of what's inside that is you've got to reach a lot of people. Apollo wouldn't be a success, in my view, through any lens if we only enabled a handful of people to do better work. It, it's got to be a broad technology. It's got to be technology that a large company can be confident in at the same time as any student going down the path of being a professional application developer or even a hobbyist can approach and, and can make use of. And I'm proud, though we're very early in this, I think the stage is set for Apollo being something that does reach all those different audiences. We've found a way to create something that's valuable for a hobbyist and at the same time valuable for a large enterprise. And valuable for a hobbyist means it's easy to get started with and it solves a real problem. Valuable for a large enterprise means it has a business impact that you can measure and um, it's something that they'll pay for. 
that economic property is what funds the whole thing. So we've had to solve, and I think open source businesses are, are just kind of complicated on the inside because of this, because you're really serving so many different needs and use cases. And you've got to find a way to bring all that together so that you've got a flourishing business, a flourishing ecosystem, a solid piece of technology, all the things we've been talking about. And I, I'd say I'm just proud that the team has found a way to do all those things. It's, it's not the easiest thing to create. Couldn't be happier with, with how far we've gotten so far. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Oh gosh, I don't know if we have that kind of time. Um, It's mistake after mistake, like any business. Apollo is interesting to me precisely because it's a technology that large companies can put into their IT strategy. It's not something that you use on the margins. It's not something for hobby projects. And that's really pushed us as a company because what's happened many times is a team that trusts us has adopted Apollo and they've run into an issue. And at this setting, um, an issue (laughs) is a way of saying like their website went down or they lost time, something that they planned to ship had to slip because of confusion about Apollo or because of a bug inside Apollo. We've had this happen many times and, and you know, candidly, it's going to happen again. And I think part of learning how to navigate that is to start by recognizing that you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make commitments based on what you learned when you made those mistakes. And sometimes you're, you're going to break those commitments. So you need to be resilient. You need to have a culture. You need to have a genuine relationship with your customers that can survive that. In fact, where those sorts of mistakes actually make you stronger. And I think about on paper, some of the worst things we've done. I mean, there was a a particular customer, one of the largest customers that we had at the time that had really trusted their whole core product to Apollo. And we made a technical error. And like a lot of these mistakes, it's, it's the confluence of three or four factors that all came together and their site went down. That could have been the lowest moment for us. I got to tell you, we did a retro. We did it jointly with the customer. That's a healthy exercise that I would recommend to anybody. Out of that, we emerged far stronger collaborators than we were before. And I learned a lot about what's really important in these relationships, especially enterprise software relationships. You know, companies are making big long-term bets on you. And one of the values we have here at Apollo is stewardship. And we talk about how It's really great that so many companies have adopted what we've built, but with that comes a real responsibility. It it means we've we've gotta recognize products are built on Apollo, careers have been bet on Apollo, our ideas have persuaded people to make decisions, and we owe it to them and to ourselves to make good on those decisions that they've made, to make those bets pay off. And they all went in eyes wide open. We didn't fool them. But we've still, I think, very much created an obligation for ourselves. And that's, that's really core to our culture, is, is we just ask every day, what is actually the thing we do that can best serve them? And we're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. So we're going to make mistakes. But I think if you build on that kind of a foundation of genuine partnership, it leaves a lot of room actually to grow and, and be stronger because of those uh, missteps. Well, what does the future look like? for your product and for your team? Well, it's my view that every company that has software, every company that wants to build a modern digital experience, which is virtually everybody out there, should be using Apollo. It's it's a technology that really enables 
uh, teams, large and small, to make better products and make them more quickly. We're in a era of everything going digital, and and you know the pandemic only accelerated that, but it was already happening, and it and it will continue to happen. So we're very much thinking long term. We're planning for the the long haul. I think platforms are things that get built over the course of a decade and they last for many decades. So we're still, you know, I think I said earlier, we're really just scratching the surface and at the start of this and the future is going to look like a, a larger and larger team here at Apollo serving a larger and larger community of developers that um, value what we build and, and have used it to uh, improve their own craft and accelerate their own efforts. Let's switch to you, Matt. Who influences the way that you work? You know, CEO, CTO, architect, name any person, really, that you look up to and why. Well, my co-founder and and our CEO is a good friend of mine. We have worked together for coming up on 20 years now on, on this and that and the other thing, going all the way back to college. And we really enjoy working together. I think any startup, in some sense, is an irrational exercise. It's it's you, you cannot pencil out on paper sometimes why these things make sense. And, you know, the, the honest truth is, you know, we started the company because we wanted to work together. And, you know, we've got some complementary skills and we've got different ways of holding each other up. Jeff's a brilliant visionary. I don't know anyone as smart or as far thinking as he is. And it's been just a privilege to have a chance to work together on this over these years you'll hear from a lot of people in the early stage startup community how important the founder relationship is, the co-founder relationship. And we've been through enough bad days that I'm confident nothing's going to really test that relationship. We we trust each other 100%. And that's let us, I think, model that trust for our team. And um, that in turn is you know really why we um, have gotten to the place we have. Well, if you could go back to the beginning... What would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? Well, there's a thousand things with hindsight we've learned and would do differently, but I don't know. I'm proud of the way we've navigated building the business. I also think modern open source is a rapidly evolving discipline and a lot of what's now clear in, in the open source community, questions around, for example, how do you license your software or just what's the business model for open source? We haven't talked about that much, but you know, just to be clear, when we say open source, the code we write is free to use. So people have thought about different ways over the course of the last 20 years. How do you make money on open source? Do you make money by supporting it? Do you make money by creating a complementary commercial product? Do you make money by running it in the cloud? Do you make money by doing implementation on top of, of the core that you've built? There's all kinds of models. And it's easy to forget how quickly those models have evolved and how much we've all learned from each other as we've done this. But look, I, I wouldn't do it differently. I, I think the key is always going to be the same. Find good people you want to work with. Build a business model where your interests are aligned with your customers so that you're working as common partners instead of trying to take something from them and keep it for yourself. And you know, be thoughtful and curious and listen. And like I said, you're going to make lots of mistakes. The key is what you do after you make those mistakes and, and how do you respond to them and how do you learn from them and how do you live those values? So I, I wouldn't touch a thing in that. Well, last question, Matt. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. 
They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Well, I'm a pilot, right? So um, the the first thing is we're, we're not going to talk about this until the plane is safely off the ground. And <laughs> we have this thing we call the sterile cockpit. So when you're when you're on the runway, you're not you're not chit chatting about the next big idea. You're you're focused on what you got to do to fly and and be safe. World's full of advice for startup founders. I'm not going to pretend to know anything that a founder who's thoughtful and has been reading and and talking to people wouldn't know from anyone else. I think for me, the thing that I come back to is people talk about doing what you love, and I think that's important. But I would take it maybe a step further. I think something that the startup ecosystem could be a little bit more thoughtful about, something the venture community could be maybe more thoughtful about is do something that's helpful. Do something that improves the world. And I think almost any idea could be shaped in different directions that have different kinds of impact on the world. I just think it's good for people to be a little bit more curious about that, maybe a little bit more self-critical about that. And the lingering question I think a lot of people have about technology, especially if they don't spend their day in the technical ecosystem the way we do is, is I mean, it really kind of boils down to like, has this stuff made anything better? Has it really? <laughs> and the jury's out on that, to be honest. So I would push them to think carefully about no one's going to care about any of this stuff in 100 years. But what they're going to care a lot about is the impact it had on them and on their families. And I think we could all do maybe with just a little bit more thought and care on the mark we leave on the world. Completely celebrate that answer. Well, Matt, appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Apollo GraphQL. Thanks. I enjoyed it. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.